I heard a story about an old country farmer. He was taking his nephew camping for the first time, and his nephew was, was very smart. In fact, as the story goes, he had five degrees behind his name. He's one of the smartest men, perhaps, alive. And they began to set up their tent, and they quickly fell asleep on this camping trip. In the middle of the night, the farmer woke up his nephew, and he said, look up, what do you see? The nephew said, I see millions of stars. And the farmer said, I know that, but what does that tell you? He said, astronomically, it tells me there are billions of galaxies. Meteorology, me, meteorologically, say that five times fast, it tells me it's going to be a beautiful day. Theologically, it tells me God is a great creator. What does it tell you? The nephew asked. The farmer shook his head and said, it tells me that somebody stole our tent. <laughs> you see, we aren't always as smart as we think we are. A self-centered life is a sure way to be wise in your own eyes while missing out on God's wisdom for everyday life. God's wisdom teaches us to be humble and righteous. Pride and self-centeredness will lead us down a path to many other evil thoughts, words, and actions. It truly is a gateway, a gateway sin to all kinds of evil. You've probably heard this term in relationship to drugs, I'm sure. A gateway drug is a term that is commonly used in reference to particular substances that are thought to be, to be those that open the way to using more dangerous or harder drugs such as heroin or cocaine. And according to our text, selfishness is a gateway sin. Where it is present, the passage says, disorder and wickedness of every kind will be found. This comes from a wrong view of self. In fact, selfishness is the direct result of one cultivating an unhealthy view of self while allowing thoughts, words, and actions to be dominated by a desire to live out this destructive self-view. As we get started today, I want us to look at a couple of verses, maybe more than just a couple, from Romans chapter 12. Could you join me in Romans chapter 12 this morning? Romans chapter 12. And I want us to look at a theological basis for a proper self-view before we answer a couple of questions from our text this morning. You have a blank white space before you on your handout. I'm just asking that you would write down some takeaways from today that you might be able to apply to your life. Romans chapter 12, of course, Paul in the first couple of verses gives us this exhortation that, that will really help us all to understand the life that we're supposed to be living. He says in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given to you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace that was given to us. If a man's gift is prophesying, then let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality. We find here that Paul in this classic passage of how the Christian life is to be lived individually and what that looks like as we relate to one another corporately, he, he, he reminds us and he cautions us to not fall into selfishness at least twice. He tells us earlier, don't think more highly of yourself than what you should. And then he deals with it again in just a little different way in verse number 10 of chapter 12 where he's telling us to honor one another above ourselves. Basically the same meaning, just said in a little different way. That is a healthy view of self. Did you notice from the passage that it's okay to be an individual as you notice, as you become aware of, and as you utilize who you are and relate to the body? Of course it's okay to be an individual. It's not okay to be an isolationist, though, in thinking that you don't relate to the rest of the body or that you don't have to interact. That's kind of silly whenever you consider the illustration that he uses here of the body, isn't it? It'd be like your finger saying that it doesn't want to relate to the rest of your body. It really doesn't have a choice. It's part of the body, right? Can you imagine a rebellious finger, right? So just really crazy whenever you think about it. It doesn't make any sense for a member of the family to have that attitude or to think that it's somehow more important than another part of the body. And so Paul gives us the strong illustration. It's okay to be an individual. It's okay to have your own giftings and your own abilities. It's okay to have those things that make you different, but don't allow the differences to be a source of contention. Don't allow the differences to be highlighted above being unified for the good of the body and for the glory of God. Everyone's allowed to be the individual that God has made them to be, but they are called to be humble and deferring to others to be outdoing each other in honor and deference as they work for the unity of the body and for the glory of their great God. 
That is a proper self-view. If you want to develop that further, just make a rich study out of Romans 12. It really helps us know who we are, who we are as individuals, and who we are as members of a body. As we are told, devotion to one another in love is not passive, but active and intentional in praying and looking for ways to honor others above yourself. We all need help, don't we? We all need help in dying to selfishness and becoming selfless. This help, as we are going to see today from our text in James 3, is found in discovering and applying God's wisdom, the wisdom that is from above. And as we say that, we need to be aware that everything in this life that is from this earth that is not from above, is going to be opposed to the kind of wisdom that we are told to pursue. And so we really are recognizing today, as much as we're learning about the wisdom that God wants us to have in all humility, we're also learning and being reminded once again of a battle that we are in. This is war. In fact, we are called in this sense and many other ways to be going upstream in a downstream world. It's not going to be easy. But if we understand what the Bible's teaching us today and we dedicate and commit ourselves to applying it, we can fight that good fight. We can be different from the culture in which we live. And by doing so, we can point others to Jesus for the saving hope and help that they so desperately need. So being different, standing out while pursuing God's wisdom, humility, and bringing him honor and glory instead of worrying about pleasing others is exactly where we need to find ourselves today. I want to ask and answer two questions from our text as we think about overcoming selfishness by discovering and applying God's wisdom. The first question that I want to ask and, and try to answer today is what does God's wisdom not look like? The text tells us very clearly, and I just want to study that with you before we get to the second question, which will be what does God's wisdom look like? So let's answer it from a negative perspective first, and then we'll look at the positive and answer what is this description? What is God's wisdom, and how should it affect my life? So what does it not look like? Well, we come to our text, and it's, it's very clear that um, this type of wisdom is described in, in a few different ways. Let's just begin with verse 13 again of James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Now here is the description of this wisdom that does not come down from heaven, but is earthly. That's the first one. Secondly, it's unspiritual. And thirdly, it's of the devil. So let's just talk about that for a little bit. 
God's wisdom does not look like this, does not look like what? First of all, God's wisdom is not earthly. That is a characteristic of this wisdom that is not from above. The scripture says this does not come down from heaven. There would be people that would tell you that it's wise to live this way, that this is the way to live. But the writer of scripture is reminding us that these things, no, they're not the way we're to live. In fact, they're exactly opposite of how we're supposed to be living. This wisdom does not come down from heaven. It is first earthly, our text tells us. What does that mean? You can read a ton about this, and you're going to find a lot of different ideas. Let me, let me offer this to you. It, it probably means that the source and standards of this wisdom are from the world. Its teachers are self-centered and shallow. This wisdom is confined to human experience apart from God. It is therefore completely and exclusively man-centered. It is earthly. We would say then that God has nothing to do with this. This is nothing of God whatsoever. It is truly not from him. The source and standards of this wisdom are from the world. Think about it with me. What is the world telling us today about how we should be living? How is, it, how is it telling the church about how it should be living and ministering? Or what is it telling the church today that it should be believing and practicing? You can think of the hot button issues just like I can. And you can even think of churches that used to stand for truth of what the Word of God has to say about all of the hot-button issues in our culture today who have changed their minds and changed their opinions and have embraced a very man-centered, self-centered view of the Scripture and have completely changed some of their core values and beliefs as a result. That is not wisdom that's from above. Anytime you make a decision, come to a conclusion, and choose a direction that is in any way contrary to Scripture, you are embracing something that is earthly, that is man-centered, and that certainly does not glorify God. We have things that are pressing the church today to get us to change our positions and beliefs, just to pick one of them, on the gender issues. And there have been massive churches that have changed their position even to the point of inviting those who are living in the lifestyle of homosexuality to speak from their platforms and almost glorifying that in front of their people. Listen, that kind of wisdom is earthly. God has stated clearly in his word how he has created us. He has created us male and female. He has assigned to us a gender and we know that and realize that after we are born. That is what brings him glory, is how he created us. For anyone to say that they're discontent with that is to suggest or perhaps even state clearly that God has somehow made a mistake. Is that heavenly wisdom? To come to the conclusion that God has made a mistake, therefore you have to improve on what God did and how he made you and try to transform yourself into something else? 
Absolutely not. That wisdom is not from above. It's man-centered. It's all about what people want and desire for themselves without any regard to what God wants and what he has stated. That's just one example. You can run a lot of other examples through that same thought process and understand what I am saying. So we have to be careful that we are receiving wisdom that is from above, not earthly. The second characteristic in our text there in verse 15 of this kind of wisdom is unspiritual. It is unspiritual. Some have put it this way. It means that it's ruled by self-will and not the spirit. Human reasoning and human feelings determine the direction completely. It has nothing to do with the spirit of God. If this is truly wisdom that is not from above, it's probably going to be characteristic of those who who are not believers, those who don't have the Holy Spirit residing in them, that spirit who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment, that spirit that enhances our conscience, that spirit that illumines our mind and heart as we read and study the Word of God, that spirit that gives us comfort and peace while we're living in a world that is falling apart. An individual who does not have that spirit can only make unspiritual decisions and come to unspiritual conclusions and choose an unspiritual direction in their life. That is not wisdom that's from above. He goes on to say at the end of verse 15 that this wisdom as opposed to God's wisdom, the wisdom that's from above, is of the devil or demonic. It's degenerate. It is not the product of a regenerated heart that's being renewed and transformed into the image of Jesus. And as a result, it is destructive. It's not constructive at all. It's completely destructive. And it will cause harm if embraced in the body. Many problems have been caused when members of faith communities have decided to embrace the wisdom that is not from above. You can tell why. Because it's earthly and unspiritual and demonic. I hope that we'll overcome these tendencies and temptations that are represented in the residue of our depravity that each of us wrestle with every day. And we can overcome this as we embrace, as we understand, as we submit to the wisdom that comes from above. That has to do with the second question that I want to ask today and answer. What does God's wisdom look like then? If it's not this wisdom that's from down here, but it's from above, what does the scripture teach us that it looks like, and how can we apply this to our lives? To answer that question, let's read the scripture, verse 17 of James chapter 3. But the wisdom that comes from above is, first of all, pure. And we'll just walk through these one at a time. The very first thing that comes into play is purity. This could easily be defined as that which represents moral blamelessness. It's blameless. It's pure. There is nothing about it that isn't pure. There's nothing about it that that lacks 
anything that is good or right. It is pure. And, and that has to touch every area. I think it's easy for us to think about our, our thoughts being pure in, in this sense that we conduct our lives according to pure thoughts. I think it's easy for us to talk about our words and making sure that they are pure. And I think it's even uh, obvious to us to talk about our actions as well. But I want you to consider a fourth component, not just our thoughts and words and actions. But if we are going to truly apply, right, if we can, are going to truly apply this to all areas of our life, it has to go beyond thoughts, words, and actions. It has to go to our motivation. What is motivating me? Why is it that I want to see this happen? Why is it that I want to do this? A lot of good things can be thought about can be talked about, and can be lived out for the wrong reasons and motivations. Think about it. The one who accepts this wisdom that is from above is going to allow this purity that is demanded to, to overrule in everything, including their motivations. I think we should think about ourselves today and make this immediately practical. Why did we come today? Now, you don't have to answer out loud, but why are you here today? What was your purpose in coming? I've shared this with you before. One of my great concerns about, about pastoring in, in the 21st century, in, in, in the right now, is what has happened to so many churches. They become more about consumerism than anything else. And then the people who are trying to strategize to, to build and grow the church are making decisions solely based on what will do two things. What will put people in the seats and dollars in the plates. Okay, and, and everything gets driven by that. What do people want? What is going to make people happy? And so we get motivated by that as if those things were a good substitution for what we find here. And I just want to say something to you. Those things are never more important than what you find right here. And decisions cannot be made on those basis for anything that we do as a faith community. We have to be driven by good theology. We have to be motivated and driven by a proper interpretation of Scripture and a solid application of it to our culture. We cannot bend or move in any way from what God clearly states to us in his word. Why do we do what we do? Why did you come here today? Why did we do our worship today the way we did our worship? I want you to think about that throughout the day. I want you to think, why would we do, why would we come together and emphasize our voices above everything else? Why is that so critical and important? We certainly weren't motivated by what every other church was doing today, were we? It was probably pretty different from what you'd find in most churches in our community today. So we weren't motivated by that. I don't think anybody participated in a poll. Did you, did you get polled about this? I don't think anybody, so we weren't, we weren't really taking our cue from what anyone else was saying. It was for the purpose of really just driving down to what's important in worship. Can we come together and lift our voices and just worship God without almost anything else? Is that possible? Yes, it is. And you, you proved that today with great joy and zeal, and it was fun to sing with you. 
Now, as I say that, this is not going to be every Sunday, okay? How many are thankful for that? No, you don't have to, you don't have to say anything. Again, be careful. Be careful of your preferences. Be careful, be careful of your desires. Be careful of, of seeing the church, right, as a buffet to which you can come into and get everything that you want and leave everything you don't like alone. No, that, that's not the mentality of New Testament church life. Be careful. Guard your hearts. Guard your motivations, church, as to why you come. Why did you come? Why did we do what we're doing? And why will we do what we do when we leave here today? Heavenly wisdom touches all of that, and it applies purity to all of that. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. It'll lead you wrong if you do. Next of all, the Scripture says that this is peace-loving. This, this wisdom is pure, yes, that's a great place to start. But, but the writer of Scripture is going to build off of that. And he's going to say, now it's, it's peace-loving. To illustrate this, could we turn over to Proverbs chapter 3? Could you find Proverbs chapter 3? And I, I just want to walk through several verses here. Proverbs chapter 3, and we want to begin in verse 13. Verse 13. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Blessed, happy is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. Why? Because she, wisdom, is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. What did it say? All her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. She has as all of her ways peace. Not contention because of selfishness and pride, which is what Proverbs tells us. At the root of all contention is pride. No, not that, but selflessness. Not selfishness, but the peace that comes from being selfless. That's going to tie in to the last verse that we read in chapter 3. Would you look at that with me, verse 18? Peacemakers who sow in peace, rather than the ones who live after this world's wisdom that that just destroy peace because of selfishness, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Critical. This is peace-loving wisdom that's from above. I want you to think about that in, in your decision-making process. I want to tell you, one of the most unhelpful things that you can do as a member of our family is to pull the pin on a grenade throw the grenade in the room, and walk away. You say, what are you talking about? Who's throwing grenades? Well, hopefully nobody, literally, unless you're in the military, right? But that's sometimes how we handle our life together, right? We want to be heard. We have a statement to make. We don't really want to listen to anybody. And so we just want to blow it up for the sake of whatever, usually selfishly motivated. So we'll pull the pin, throw the grenade, and just watch the carnage, that happens way too often in church life. And that is not the right way to resolve things. You know the right way to resolve things. I don't have to tell you that. But that's just one way that we can apply this aspect of loving peace. If you're going to be wise, 
If you're going to do the right and wise thing, then even in conflict, you will find a peaceful way to reconcile and to resolve. Not throw the grenade and walk away. Anybody can do that. It takes spirit-enabled boldness and courage and holiness to resolve issues the way that the church is called to resolve them. So be careful. Love peace. Love peace in everything in your life, even the way that you handle conflict. He goes on to say that this wisdom is also considerate and and. Uh, gentle, we might say. Some translations would use the word gentle here. Considerate and gentle. It says literally, willing to yield. This type of wisdom that makes for peace in the faith community is willing to yield. Is that what you really want to do? I mean, really. Do you really want to yield and defer? If you're like me, left to myself, I just want my way all the time. How about you, right? It's the easiest way to live, isn't it? Just wanting your way. It takes work to give up your way. It takes work to let someone else have something that, that is meaningful to them in a relationship, whether it's two people or 500 people in relationships together. Let us be considerate of one another, not just focusing on what we desire, right? Because sometimes what happens is we get locked into the, to the th- frame of thinking that what I desire has to be right and everybody else that desires something different has to be wrong. Well, that's just silly thinking. But we often fall into that trap, don't we? So let's be considerate and gentle and willing to yield. The next thing is a very interesting word. In, in the NIV, which is the translation that I read from this morning, you'll find the word submissive, submissive. That is an interesting way to translate the Greek word. And you may have a different word in your translation this morning. Some would have that. Others would have different ones, of course. What does it mean? Well, let me try to explain this to you. It's an interesting word. It means to be open to reason or reasonable or teachable and compliant. It's not being assertive, right? It's being open to reason, reasonable, teachable, or compliant. Willing to think things through. Willing to ask and answer the hard questions in a quest of finding out real truth and not just settling. Someone wrote it this way. They said, it speaks of a willing deference to others when unalterable theological or moral principles are not involved. I love the way that writer put it. It is a willing deference to others when unalterable theological or moral principles are not involved. It's really talking about honest differences of opinion between sincere believers. And we ought to be open to that. We ought to be open to thinking through things, to actually considering that what we like or prefer may not be the only right way to do things as it does not involve unalterable theological or moral principles. We can't get into the study today, but if you're in a situation like that where you're trying to sort things out and you find yourself in that struggle, 
Would you read through and study Romans 14, where the Apostle Paul lays out principles for how to handle questionable things or debatable things? We won't get into that study today, but I would encourage you to do that if you find yourself struggling with this idea. The writer of Scripture goes on to say that this wisdom that is from above is next of all full of mercy and good fruit. If you're going to live a wise life according to God, if you're going to live a knowledgeable life that puts into practice what he's telling us to do, it's going to be merciful and full of good fruits. I like to pair those things together because they're paired together in Scripture. And I think that James touches on this earlier in his writing, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this love, of course, shows itself in action. That's the good fruit part. It's the idea of having mercy in your heart towards someone and acting on it. Maybe investing in them. Maybe they don't even deserve it, but you're going to graciously and mercifully give them what they don't deserve and withhold from them what they do deserve. Wisdom does that. What about James chapter 2? Could we go back to that chapter and, and begin reading in verse 8? James chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. The wisdom is from above is merciful and exhibits good works, good fruit. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Be merciful. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others as God has loved you. Show it in action. Don't just say it. That's the best way to live and a wonderful way to relate to each other in the faith community. There are two more and we'll be finished answering this question and with our study as well. It next of all says back in James chapter 3 verse 17, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial. What does that mean? Well, it's speaking of, of being without any kind of prejudice, right? No prejudice is found here. And there are different types of prejudices. You, you, your mind often runs to, to racial issues, right? But there are a lot of other types of prejudice that you could show. I mean, you might learn about someone in our faith community who has a past that they're not proud of. And, and you might learn about that and go, how in the world does somebody do that? Well, listen, that's not really for you to worry about, first of all. And secondly, what about the grace of God that forgives and restores? We all have things in our past that we're not proud of, and, and we can form a prejudice by thinking that, boy, somebody, well, there are just lines. If we cross those lines, I mean, I don't know if they can be forgiven or not. 
Well, I hate to tell you, there's nothing, there's no sin that is greater than God's grace. In fact, we sang of that earlier. His grace truly is greater than our sin, all of our sin. In fact, all of our sin put together, past, present, and future from all of us. And God forgives and restores. And we need to embrace that same mindset as well without forming prejudice. That's just one example. There are other examples of prejudice, of course. What about James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1? My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Impartial, without prejudice. We live in a world, whether it wants to admit it or not, today that presses us into to being prejudiced. Today, it's more about being prejudiced about what is right, <laughs> against what is right. And the church is being pressed with that prejudice. And I, I hate to tell you, it's going to happen more and more and more. This is just the beginning, just the beginning. Finally, and we'll be finished, this kind of wisdom that helps us die to self and, and live a life of, of gratitude to God for his grace in our lives is sincere. Look at that. It's impartial and sincere. The end of verse 17. That means it's authentic. It's not fake or artificial. How many of you smiled at somebody today that you really didn't want to smile at? Did that happen to you? <laughs> I hope not, but maybe, right? In a group this size, we might have some things going on in our relationships and, and uh, you ever been anywhere and thought, wow, that's, that, that display of, of kindness was just a little too much. It didn't seem real. You ever been in that situation? Or, or you just wonder about the authenticity of something or whether or not it's fake or, or artificial or, or put on, right? Wisdom is authentic and sincere in our relationships, it's not smiling at someone and shaking their hand and then when they walk away, stabbing them in the back the first chance that we get. That's not sincerity and that is not a wise way to live. Although in the dog-eat-dog -dog world, people often find themselves in that position and the world will tell you the way to get ahead is to do that. Make them think you're their friend, but when they turn their back, anything goes. That's not wise. That is not wise at all. Wisdom is sincere. So hopefully we've answered a couple of questions today about what God's wisdom doesn't look like and what it does look like. And the question for us to wrestle with then as we, as we leave this place today in just a few moments is, okay, now what? How does God want me to take what I've learned today and live it out? What area in my life, or areas, plural, needs to change? And how can I pursue dying to self so that I'm not so focused on myself, embracing selflessness, having a heart that truly, that truly is, is full of gratitude to God and that lives that out every day 
touching others with his love. You see, selfishness is a gateway sin. And when left unchecked, chaos breaks out, disorder breaks out, and every other evil thing. It's a gateway. Don't walk through it. Die to self and live after the wisdom that is from above.